Good morning, Cross Point. Thanks for coming out to the third service of the morning. Do you have a Bible? This morning you will need it. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. There should be uh, Bibles all around you in the seat racks under every chair, about every second or third chair is a copy of the Bible. If you don't have one at home, please help yourself to one and take that Bible home with you so that you can do some reading I'm going to recommend to you at the end of this sermon. As far as I know, as far as I can remember, as long as I've been preaching, I don't think I've ever taught the Bible quite the way I'm going to do this morning. Today we're going to begin a very short series, just three weeks, this week being the first, to help you learn how to read the prophets of the Bible. And we're going to do something that normally you do in a classroom, but this morning I'm going to beg for your patience, and we're going to do it in church together. I want to help you through this sermon understand who the prophets are, why they matter, what sort of benefit reading them in your Bible can bring to you, and most of all, it's all oriented toward obedience. We're not interested in piling up information. What we're interested in is a life transformed by Jesus. And the prophets in the Bible are a very large section of the Bible, as I'm about to show you, and they have a great deal to tell you about Jesus prophetically and to show you about God's character for all of eternity. So, here's the part that we've never done. I'd like you to open your Bible, actually, please, in the table of contents. You're saying, how long is this sermon going to be? We're starting in the table of contents. We're not even actually in the Bible. Not that long, actually. I just want to help you see how the Bible is put together and particularly where the prophets fit into it. If you look in your table of contents, you'll immediately notice that it's, the Bible is divided into two large sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the easiest way to understand how the Bible is put together is just to imagine or maybe even draw, if you're the kind that writes and keeps notes in the Bible, you can put a little cross in the space between the Old Testament and the New Testament as a reminder of what each testament is doing. The Old Testament is looking ahead to Jesus. The New Testament is pointing to Jesus, even giving you his birth story, telling you that he's arrived, telling you how his first disciples came to believe in him and the things they were willing to do to serve him and to spread his name around. And then the last part of the Old Testament, beginning in Romans, is all a bunch of letters written primarily by the Apostle Paul. Almost all of the epistles were written by the Apostle Paul. Peter and John wrote, respectively, two and three letters each. And right at the end of your Bible, the very last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, is the only book of prophecy in the New Testament. That is a revelation of Jesus, from Jesus, explaining to you some things that have happened in the past, but primarily things that have yet to occur, wrapping the whole story together from Genesis, literally, to Revelation. Because the Old Testament is far less familiar to most people, even Christians, than the New Testament, let me walk you through it. The book of Genesis is called Genesis because it is the book of origins, the book of beginnings. God creates a perfect world in the first two chapters of Genesis. Sin enters the world in the third chapter of Genesis. And in Genesis 3.15, in very cryptic, symbolic, poetic language, 
already in Genesis 3.15, the first hint of a Savior who's going to make everything right is given in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 12, God, who has been dealing with the whole world that he made for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, slows down and focuses specifically on one man named Abram who lived at his time in what we now call Iraq. His ancestors would have been pagan moon worshipers. God makes Abram a surprising and undeserved promise that through Abram somehow all the nations in the world would be blessed and restored. In the book of Exodus, a very famous book in the Bible, God now having started the nation of Israel from Abram as he promised, now forms a nation for himself. He gives them his law, most famously the Ten Commandments. In the book of Exodus, and this has been chronicled through movies and cartoons for decades in the United States, Israel that had fallen under Egyptian captivity is led out powerfully through miracles to be planted in a land that God had promised them, and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all explain the covenant that God made with Israel. The covenant is going to prove to be a very important word to the prophets. Because God always intends to communicate with the people he's actually dealing with at a particular moment in time, God adapted cultural forms from the ancient world in a form known to people that lived all the way back then and made them promises with obligations on both sides, with far more love and generosity, obviously, coming from God to Israel, but with definite expectations and obligations that in return they would reciprocate God's love by obeying Him. That the chief purpose of their goal, of their life, would be to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Those first five books from Genesis to Deuteronomy are that law, are that teaching, are that covenant. In Deuteronomy, that strange name literally means a second law, and what it is, is Moses, shortly before dying himself, reviewing and preaching and rehearsing and insisting that Israel keep the covenant. In the book of Joshua, they go into the land that they were promised, but the book of Judges, one of the most violent and interesting books in the entire Bible, they become very much like the nations around them. They become idolatrous, and God periodically has to rescue them through a military leader that was called a judge. It's chaotic and violent. If it were filmed, it would be R-rated because it is so bloody and chaotic. And the theme that runs through Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own, in his own mind. In Ruth tells a story from the book of Judges and from 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Chronicles, the stories of the kings of Israel are told. The most well-known king, of course, is David. And he wasn't the first king of Israel, he was the second. Because the nation of Israel rejected the rule of God. They said, we want to be like the nations around us. They rejected their last judge and their first prophet, a famous man named Samuel, who begrudgingly anointed Saul as their king. Saul rose to prominence among Israel, mainly, believe it or not, according to the Bible, because he was tall. People have been electing 
leaders for the wrong reasons for a very, very long time. <laughs> Saul was tall. David was a shepherd boy of no particular importance, but David trusted God in a way that Saul never did. And David, of course, made his name by going to deliver some food to his brothers who were supposed to be fighting one of Saul's battles. There David heard a giant warrior defying God and blaspheming God, and David said, is no one going to do anything about this? And the beginnings of the kingship of Saul started to erode, and the name of David started to rise. You can read those stories in First and Second Samuel. Then Solomon rises his son is even a bigger disappointment than Solomon turns out to be. A civil war erupts and the nation is split in two. All of the Old Testament shows God's faithfulness and Israel's continual disobedience to Him and their continual flaws and sinfulness. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are books of Israel being restored and rebuilding in the land after their sins drove them away from it. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon are all wisdom and poetry. These are some of the most well-known and loved parts of the Old Testament. When my heart is heavy, I always go to the Psalms. I always go to Proverbs because I want to continue to learn. I want to learn wisdom, and that's what Proverbs teaches me. And after those books of wisdom, then beginning in Isaiah all the way through Malachi, in other words, all the way through the Old to the end of your Old Testament, 16 consecutive books, all prophets. And if you have your notes... It says there are more books of prophecy in the Bible than there are of any other kind. And that's a poorly written sentence, and it's my fault, because I wrote it. What I meant to say was that there are more books who bear the name of prophets than there are of any other kind. Because there are more epistles than prophetic books, but Paul wrote almost all of the epistles. James and Peter, just the two of them, account for another five. If we're looking about a specific kind of writing in the Bible, there are more writing prophets than there are of any other kind of literature. They're divided into four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and the last 12 books of the Bible are known as the minor prophets. And don't let the names confuse you. Israel has never referred to them as major and minor prophets. Those are just designations regarding their length, not their importance. There's another, better, more Hebrew way of looking at those books that I think is more fair to all of the prophets. Here's what you need to understand if you're going to walk into the banquet hall that the prophets offer you. I'm taking this time to show it to you in the table of contents so that you can see how heavily weighted the Old Testament is toward prophecy. Before Jesus arrived, 16 consecutive prophets, beginning with Isaiah, who wrote 700 years before the birth of Jesus, write the Word of God down. And the role of the prophets was that. The role of the prophets was to speak for God, which could include predicting the distant future. What makes the prophets so unique compared to the rest of Scripture is 
The prophets specifically are messengers sent from God and they speak with God's own voice. They quote him. The only other part to hear God speak in his own voice comes much later in the Gospels when Jesus, the Son of God, is speaking. In the Old Testament, the prophets often spoke of their own time with the future fulfillment to occur at the Lord's return. It's an important thing for you to remember, and I'm going to show it to you in a moment. The prophets always begin with the people who are standing right in front of them. The prophets will speak of distant times, times that they will live through, times that the first people they spoke to will live through sometimes, and often they will refer to messianic promises, future kingdom promises, some of which still haven't been fulfilled, but they always start with their own day and in their own time. And a prophet in the Old Testament is the one who spoke God's word to God's people. If you want to know what a prophet is, just remember this phrase, a prophet is an enforcer of the covenant that God made with the Israelites all the way back in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. A covenant, as I told you, is a familiar form that would have immediately been recognized by the Israelites in their own time where God is making undeservedly beautiful, amazing promises to them with expectations that they will love and obey Him in return. Every time a prophet shows up, it's hardly ever to give an attaboy. A prophet is sent because the people have chosen their own way, because they've been breaking God's law, because they've been forsaking the covenant. And if you've read any of the prophets, how did it usually go for the prophets, by the way? How were they received? Confetti, ticker tape parades, dessert for the prophet Isaiah, right? A little welcoming area and a red carpet. No, it it went terribly for them generally because the people had chosen a path that was taking them farther away from God. They didn't know it and believe it yet, but it was actually going to condemn them and destroy them. And the prophet is there to call them back. The prophets are very dense reading, very beautiful reading, sometimes heavy reading because they use every tool available to the preacher and the writer. They're dramatic. They paint with bright red colors. They use imagery, as I'm going to show you, drawn out of the world. God speaks of himself, for instance, as a husband who is dealing with an unfaithful wife. He speaks of his word and himself as living water flowing in the desert that people are walking away from and that they're going to starve and die from thirst if they don't turn back to him. That's what the prophets are. That's what they do. They're enforcers. And there are hundreds of prophets spoken of in the Bible. Only these 16 wrote in the Old Testament. But prophets are all the way through the Bible. In the historical books, like these books I've been mentioning to you, First and Second Samuel and the books that follow, you meet some of the prophets that act like Samuel. Samuel was the last of Israel's judges and the first of Israel's prophets. He was the first to hear from God directly and speak, in Samuel's case, to a wayward priest and say, listen, God wants to get your attention. This is what God has told me to tell you. But these acting prophets in the historical books, they don't write anything 
They just do things. And if you've read, if you remember from Sunday school or from your own Bible reading, the stories of Elijah and Elisha, incredible, powerful, miracle-working prophets pointing back to God. That's in the historical books. Nathan himself, a man who confronted David, were quietly told was a prophet. If you remember that sad portion of David's life after David killed the giant, became king, became wildly successful, David got old and self-indulgent. When he should have been leading his armies in war, he stayed behind. He saw a beautiful woman bathing. He lusted after her. He sent for her, even though he knew she was the wife of one of his soldiers who was actually waging war on David's behalf, far from Israel. Under the color of authority, he abused her, slept with her, got her pregnant, was told that she was pregnant, and had her husband murdered on the battlefield to cover up the pregnancy. When all of that was done, God sent one of his prophets, not a writing prophet, but a preaching prophet. His name was Nathan. And he confronted David and told David a terrible story of a rich, abusive man. And then he pointed at David and said, you are that man. David was brokenhearted and wrote one of the greatest psalms in the Bible, Psalm 51, where David's heartbroken confession, when he hears himself called out, he comes back to God. That's the kind of prophets that are actually woven through all of Israel's history, all of God's Word, the Bible. In the prophetic books, where we're going to be today, we don't see the prophets acting usually, sometimes, but their main role is to actually not only preach, but to write down God's message directly to the people. That's the Bible college portion. Everybody okay? Now, here's the difficulty of reading the prophets or any part of the Bible, because none of this happened last year. We don't have a viral video clip to remind us of any of these events. At the earliest, they happened 2,000 years ago. The prophets happened 2,700 years ago, 2,400 years ago. Here's a Bible reading tip. To make sense of the prophets and the entire Bible, the single best thing you can do for $35 or $40, buy yourself a great study Bible. And before you read any portion of a book in the Bible, read the introductory notes that a good study Bible will always have. Look at the timeline that will show you where that book fits and understand who Isaiah was, when he was writing, what the people were doing, and basically what God was upset about and why Isaiah was sent to them to enforce the covenant in the first place. If you know the backstory of the 66 books that make up the Bible, all of the Bible will come together. You'll see it in, in, as one continuing unfolding story, which it is. You just have to put in a little bit of work. The by current favorite Bible study, there are many good ones. I probably own a dozen. My current favorite Bible study, and I'll remind you of this in my Thursday email, if you haven't subscribed to that, I'd encourage you to do so, is called the CSB Study Bible. It's very concise, it's very clear, it has timelines, it'll help you understand every book of the Bible, including the prophets, before you read them. Why does this matter? Well, imagine with me that you find a love note 
tossed away in a park, and the love note simply says this, Chad, it's over, I love another. And that's all you got, two lines. But you ask, does this belong to anybody? Is this meaningful to anybody? And you find out that Chad is actually a fourth grader, and he had a crush on a fifth grade girl, and for about three exciting days, she allowed him to buy her a Coca-Cola and share potato chips at recess. And for about 72 hours, they had a torrid fourth and fifth grade love affair, only at recess. But then, of course, an older boy, the best athlete in school, started paying attention to her, so she grabbed a note and wrote, Chad, it's over, I love another. If you know that backstory, it makes a lot of sense. You know what to make of the note. But what if you found out that it wasn't children? What if you found out that Chad was a very normal guy who discovered early in life that he hated school and he wasn't any good at it, couldn't make any kind of grades, but in high school fell in love with a brilliant girl in her high school that was clearly destined for academic success. And though he couldn't make much sense of it because he was just a normal workman-like guy, they fell in love, and for the last 10 years after they graduated from high school, Chad has worn his body out working three blue-collar jobs, working 14 to 16 hours a day most days of the week to help his wife get through med school. And after she had graduated from med school, while she was an intern at a hospital, she had fallen in love with a doctor, another doctor. And believing now that a better life was possible with a man that she considered more of her own station, she left him a cold note, Chad, it's over, I love another. See, if you knew that, that note would mean so much more. That's why you should never just dive into reading any part of the Bible without taking at least a few minutes to understand the context, the backdrop, the history, the reason this was necessary to be written in the first place. The whole story will come alive if you'll just diligently, day by day, when you read the Bible, try to understand its purpose first. The Prophets, as big as they are and as dramatic as their language is, the prophets are only really doing three things. Here are the three major tasks of the prophets. First of all, they always show up first with an accusation. They tell the people that they're sent to, you are disobeying God. Then they call for repentance and they ask people to come back to God. And then in the parts of the prophets that are always loved and always memorized, the prophets promise that God will forgive and restore you if only you will come back. Open your Bible, please, to Jeremiah, and let me show you this at work. Use the table of contents if you need to, and look with me, please, in Jeremiah chapter 2. And I'm reading in verse 4. Here you're going to hear the voice of God Himself spoken word for word by this prophet, this weeping, reluctant, frightened prophet that He sent because He had to live through the things that they were doing named Jeremiah. Prophet, uh, Jeremiah 2 verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. 
and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? There's the book of Exodus right there. Who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits in a land of drought and deep darkness in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Now he's going to indict all of their leaders. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, one of the false gods of their neighbors. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus. In other words, look across the Mediterranean. Look at your neighbors over on the island of Cyprus and see, or send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there's ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Listen to how dramatic this gets. Look, to, look how serious this is to God. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Focus on verse 13 with me, please. When God is done reminding Israel of their good history, of all that He had done to love them and save them and bring them out through the desert into their own land, He went leader by leader, and said, every single one of you who should have known better forgot all about me. Once you got settled, nobody ever asked about me again. And then he sums it up in verse 13 saying that you've committed two different evils. The first is, you have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And the second is, you've hewed out cisterns for yourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And again, because we're going back a long time away, uh, a long time ago and far away, some of you may not even know what a cistern is. How many of you know what a cistern is? And no, it's not the sibling of your brethren, okay? <laughs> Terrible joke, I apologize. I know what a cistern is because I had one from the time I have memory because I grew up in the desert, a climate very much like Israel's in northern Mexico. A cistern is a waterproof holding tank that you dig deep into the ground to hold what little water you can catch. In Chihuahua, Mexico, where I grew up, water is so scarce that they actually only turn it on for a few hours a day. And you either have a tank on top of your house or a cistern dug in the ground that you can pump water out of or have water drop into your house if the tank is on the roof. That's the only way you make it through the day in that climate. Now listen at God's accusation. He's talking about their land. He's using things that they would understand. First of all, verse 13, he says, 
you, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. In other words, I personally am running fresh water. I'm all that you need. I'll sustain your life. I'll make everything you want to grow prosper and flourish wherever you plant it. You have me. You have living water. It's a very important phrase in the Old Testament. It talks about flowing water that does not run out, its own source. In other words, not what you can collect and hope for. Living water is running right in front of you. Years ago when we were missionaries, I visited the little tiny Southern America, South American country of Uruguay, and there I tasted the best water I've ever had in my life. They took me into this nature preserve, and we were going along a trail, and suddenly here's a black, glistening rock. And in the rock, a silver faucet. And they said, uh, open up that faucet and have a drink. I said, what, what, what is this? I'm not accustomed to faucets jutting out of cliffs. And they said, this faucet is connected to a river. It's miles and miles from here, far up in these mountains. The water is perfectly pure and naturally cold. It's delicious. Here's a glass. Take some. I opened up the faucet and beautiful silvery water poured out. I tasted it. It tasted like it had just come out of a refrigerator. It was amazing. That's living water. That's who God says He is to His people who live in this dry, parched desert. He said, you had in me all the water you could ever want, and what you've done instead is gone out into the hot desert and dug a hole, and you're so bad at it that it's broken. What little water you can collect, what little blessing you can accumulate is always going to leak away because you're not even good at replacing me. That's the accusation. Flip into the next chapter to Jeremiah chapter 3 and listen to the call for repentance. Jeremiah chapter 3. God speaks to Jeremiah again in verse 12. Jeremiah 3, 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. There's the call to return. And if you look all the way toward the end of the book in Jeremiah 31, listen to this beautiful statement of renewal, of restoration, of forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. What a beautiful phrase. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. Listen, here's God's heart. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. That's just a quick 
to or through Jeremiah. The three tasks of Jeremiah the prophet and of all the prophets to call people to account by accusing them of disobedience, to call them back through repentance, to promising their forgiveness and their restoration. Let me tell you now in closing, before I show you something that I find absolutely spectacular from Jesus, the benefits of reading the prophets. First of all, in the prophets, like nowhere else in the Bible, we see God's character on display, holy and just and faithful. You get to hear God speak at length about Himself, His heart, His mind, His plans, His disappointment, His anger, His justice. It's all spelled out word by word, story by story, oracle by oracle, poem by poem in the prophets. Number two, we see the severity of sin. Our culture has nearly completely bankrupted the idea of sin. The only time I hear sin or sinners mentioned in our culture, it's as a joke. Ah, you big sinner. Like they used to say of Puritans, not a bit of truth in it, that a Puritan was someone who was afraid that somewhere someone was having a good time. Our culture has so devalued the very idea of right and wrong and that God has His own character and sets His own holy standard that the very idea of sin is discounted, is minimized. The prophets don't let you get away with that. They show you through loss, through death, through destruction, through war and disease, through all kinds of trouble, how serious sin always has been because the Bible's warning all the way through the Scriptures is that sin will always and only ruin you and kill you. And finally, thirdly, we see forgiveness and restoration by the grace of God and the prophets as they telescope forward into the future and start to speak of blessings and restoration and peace and renewal that you cannot find in human history, that's because it has not yet happened. It will happen only at the Lord's return. Now look with me in final two places. Look with me finally in the Gospel of John and let me sh show you Jesus dealing with people and in his role as the very Son of God, acting like a prophet and reminding people of God's Word. In John chapter 4, if you're familiar with the story, Jesus takes an uncomfortable detour, uncomfortable for his disciples, because Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews. It was a deep ethnic rivalry. Samaritans were half Jewish. Their very history and religion represented a time of compromise and idolatry on Israel's part, a whole other nation that claimed to be the true spiritual people in the land had arisen, and they despised each other. In fact, one of my Hebrew professors said that a Samaritan rule and tradition said that if any Samaritan saved the life of a Jewish man, the Samaritan man who had discovered saving a Jew would have to be killed himself by his own people. Puts a whole new light on the story of the Good Samaritan. He's not just doing a normal good deed that anybody would do, he's risking his own life. Well, Jesus, for reasons that you're soon going to understand, has taken a purposeful detour into Samaria, and he sets up 
an interview that made his disciples very uncomfortable. John chapter 4, verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. In other words, it's high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John explains, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Pay very close attention to verse 10. This is amazing. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you, what's it say there? Living water. Not water out of a well. Living water. Where did Jesus ever get that idea? From Jeremiah. If the people listening to him had read the scriptures, they would understand that Jesus is tying his life and his identity all the way back to the prophets. And he makes it even more explicit than that. Our final reference. Look in John chapter 7, please. Now Jesus is talking to an entirely different crowd. He's talking to observant religious Jews. They're on the last day of a feast that involves a water ceremony. In other words, these are the good people. These are the covenant keepers. These are the law-abiding citizens of Israel. And to them, Jesus says this, John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He's shouting. This isn't quiet teaching. Jesus is shouting. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow, what's it say? Rivers of living water. What does he mean? John explains. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If the language is unfamiliar to you, what John is explaining is that Jesus hasn't died yet. That Jesus is on his way to die on the cross, that after Jesus is risen from the dead, after being killed on the cross, the Holy Spirit would come and give people who trusted Jesus his own life. And it's not only that Jesus refreshes people, it's that he gives them his own life. And out of your life as a disciple of Jesus, water flows. He's that abundant, he's that generous, he's that satisfying. All of this is tied together with the prophets, but only if you know them, only if you've heard God's voice speak in them first. So my invitation to you, beginning next week, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 1. Right now, I want to invite you for the next couple of weeks, along with whatever else you read in the Bible, start reading the prophets and understanding the backstory so that you will see the full beautiful, good character of a faithful God who pleads with people not to die spiritually, but to come back instead to Him and to be perfectly saved and restored and renewed. The end of the book says that God, through Jesus, is going to make all things new and all things right, and we're going all the way back to the beginning 
before sin entered the world. If you have an idea of yourself someday in heaven in bathrobes playing a harp, that's a Red Bull commercial. That's a Greek mythology idea that has nothing to do with the vision and the work that God is doing through Jesus Christ. And that life begins right now when you stop digging your own hole in the ground and you come instead and trust Him. Let's pray together, shall we? Jesus, give us a little time now that I've talked and taught so much to deal honestly with you. Christian, can I just ask you if you've been digging your own resources, making your own solutions? God has been warning people from the days of the prophets that it won't work, that you have to come to His Son instead. If you've been choosing your own way, because that's the nature of sin, it just tells you that you know better than God that it'll be better if you do it your way instead of His. Listen to the prophets. Stop digging. Start resting and drinking instead. And maybe you sat through this little bit of a Bible college talk and quick tour through one of the prophets, but you're not even sure you know Jesus. You've been doing stuff and showing up at the days and reading and singing and maybe even giving and serving other people, but you're not truly sure down deep in your heart that Jesus is your Savior. You for sure don't know that rivers of living water are pouring out of your life for the good of others. Could I just invite you to be saved this morning? To give up on yourself? Stop doing your own thing. Surrender to Him. Say, Jesus, I believe. I come to you as you asked that woman to do. I'm asking you for a drink. Tired of my own solutions. I'm going to trust you. Start following you. Start resting in you. If you do that, he'll save you.